There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate that's a great concern. And what do you want that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, the voice of the people on climate change. And welcome to Episode 6, an interview with Earl Gibbs. Wow, episode six already. That's crazy, Rich. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, you guys all noticed this isn't our way special, at least not yet. That has been pushed back just one more week. Yeah, we've found that the more we delve into this, the more interesting and, dare I say, controversial it becomes. So mm-hmm. we've pushed it back a little bit more to do it justice. That's right. We found it's a bit like we're Alice and we're going down the rabbit hole, and uh, mm-hmm. we did not expect to... Uh, be confronted by such an interesting, as you say, Rich, and, and also difficult to grapple with topic. Yes. And really, yeah, as you say, do it justice. So instead, we're bringing you this week an interview Rich did with his friend, Al Gibbs. Can you tell me a little bit more about this interview, Rich? Yeah, thanks, Mark. A couple of weeks ago, you did an interview with Doug Holmes, and you described him as one of your heroes. Well, Earl's one of my heroes, too, also a friend. And throughout the interview, you'll hear about her community activism, and I really admire her. She's put the community ahead of her own interests time and time again, from when she served on Blue Mountains Council, which is when I was aware of her, to her work as a disability advocate now. And she's not afraid to put her point of view, and you'll hear that about 11 minutes, listeners, because that's when she starts taking the long handle to one of my questions that she disagrees with. That's right. She got so passionate about what she was telling Rich that uh, there was a couple of table pounds in there. So I apologize for a couple minutes of a little bit of rough audio, but <laughs> yep. all the rest is great. And we're so excited to bring you this interview. Let's take it away. Okay. Talking to El Gibbs, finance writer, disability advocate and activist, footy fan, leading progressive thinker, friend, and proud member of the Twitterverse. How's that intro, Elle? Hilarious, Rich. <laughs> Lovely to see you. And it's fantastic to have you back in Katoomba. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's a lovely Katoomba day too. <laughs> Foggy and overcast, as Foggy always. <laughs> you don't see the sun up here much. <laughs> okay, Elle, you said in your article, March the 6th, 2013, and I'll quote, everything from transport to housing policy should incorporate a climate change component. Can you just go into that a little bit more, please? Sure. I think that one was particularly looking at Western Sydney and one of my frustrations around climate policy has been its lack of interconnectedness, that climate change policy is popped off over there in the environmental category for people to think about who care about, you know, recycling and green things and organic food when I think climate change is going to affect all of us and it's going to be something that is going to impact on every aspect of our lives. I don't think that it is something that gets to be hived off over into the environmental green corner. Given the seriousness of climate change, the the rapidity of it coming towards us, um, I I do visualise climate change as a little bit of a tsunami and that it is getting closer and closer. 
and the time for us to be able to do stuff about it is getting shorter and shorter. And therefore, we're not in the position to be able to take minor measures anymore. And it needs to be something that is part of every part of our policy development and every part of our political decision making. So not pigeonholed no. in any way. No. So it's kind of like you can't have a climate change policy, say, about transport that then doesn't look at what the implications of that is around housing or about our urban infrastructure or our water infrastructure or uh, how we design work, you know, that impacts on environmental travel and all of that kind of stuff. So having a, a joined up policy around climate change that actually incorporates all parts of our, you know, built infrastructure, our, our economic infrastructure and our personal infrastructure is going to be incredibly important to make sure that when climate, the, the real wave of climate change disasters hit us, it's not going to just exacerbate existing inequalities. So is there any areas, Ellen, in that infrastructure, a local government implementation that you find encouraging now than when you wrote that article in 2013? <laughs> or are we, is it still pretty much the same? Yeah, look, I, I suppose, I think transport and housing are the two key things that I think about because they, they are the things that affect everybody's sort of daily life. So, and to be honest, I think we're going backwards. I think that in terms of transport, the inequities between what's being invested for, say, roads and cars and then what's being invested for public transport mm-hmm. are amazing and ridiculous. So for, for us here in Western Sydney, the lack of investment, say, in the train infrastructure, particularly yeah. for the Western Line in mm. Sydney, that has flow-on effects for freight for the whole of regional New South Wales, for the broader train network in Sydney, plus, you know, getting 2.5 million people around Western Sydney by train. But we can invest $8 billion in a road that'll take people 15 kilometres, you know. Yeah. So I find all of that stuff very difficult. And the fact that our housing hasn't actually changed so that new housing has some components like small bits where people have to make them slightly more sustainable. But we're not building to say, like, these houses are going to be here for 50 years. And in 50 years, there's not going to be electricity from coal anymore. And there is going to be a lot more weather disasters and a lot more erratic weather. It's going to be a lot hotter. There's going to be – people are going to need to be based more at home because transport is going to be more difficult. So all of those kind of things that are easy to see are coming are just nowhere on the policy landscape at all, uh, let alone for people who are not millionaires. Okay. Well, you've established your reputation now as one of Australia's finest riders on disability. However, many will remember you, and I'm one, from your sterling work representing the Blue Mountains as a councillor. But I do recall that you mentioned about a sort of climate of denial. Is that still around? Do we still see that in local government? Yeah. And that makes me really sad because I do think local government is probably positioned at some of the forefront of being able to take real action on climate change at the ground level. So something that you and I have talked a lot about before is the importance of local and community action, that I think communities are really well-placed to be able to figure out what works best for them. So the kind of solutions that might work really well in Katoomba are not necessarily going to work really well in Blacktown. Mm -hmm. You know, the weather's really different for a start. Absolutely. (laughs) But the population is different, the geography is different. But I think that our communities in Blacktown and Katoomba are able and very capable of taking really good local action. 
I think one of the challenges has been that, you know, just politically state and federal governments have more and more taken power away from local governments in terms of being able to make decisions. So even on things like development applications, local communities have very little say now on DAs. So most DAs are decided by so-called independent planning panels and which mainly means state governments, and they make laws for developers, for people to make money out of. So the, the communities have very little say on, mm, on the kinds of developments that happen in yep. their communities, and that kind of development, those developments have an impact necessarily on climate change. So one of the things that we were able to do a fair bit of was do the kind of renewal thing. So, for example, we had a project that was a little bit quiet and sneaky where every time that the council had to renew a council building, they put sustainability as part of that and they put particularly renewable energy as part of it. So you'll see around the mountains now Mm. lots of little solar panels everywhere, hot water facilities, that kind of stuff, because what we did was we just sneakily got a little fund and that every year all the community halls that were being replaced and had to have their kitchens redone or their hot water systems redone, they had to have a solar one. So it's just a start anyway. So it was just a little little bits at a time, and, and, yes, it's small, and, yes, it's incremental, but those kind of little changes mean that, say, you know, the Lawson Hall now will be able to generate its own electricity mm-hmm. so that in 30 years' time you'll be able to go there and turn the heaters on and have some hot water and okay. cook, cook meals for the community. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm thinking of. Uh, you mentioned about the importance of community, and I know from many years you've campaigned on behalf of the community. How important should climate change be? to the community, and what should they be doing right now? Yeah, I have I have competing ideas around that stuff because mm-hmm. I do, while I think local communities are best placed to decide what is best for them, I do think that we've got to the pointy end of, of what is needed in terms of action on climate change and that local communities are not necessarily going to be able to do the big things that need to change. So, you know, taking electricity, for example, one of the things that we've campaigned and you were part of this in terms of campaigning around electricity in the mountains and electricity privatisation, we were campaigning around keeping electricity in public hands, which is not a decision that was being made locally by any stretch of the imagination. But we were campaigning on it and about, cli- about climate change as much as it was about privatisation because having local communities being able to generate our own power is really, really important. But the people who are making the decisions about the grid, you know, the national grid, mm. are the federal government. They're not us in here in Katoomba. No. So we can make decisions about generating and doing power. But what we need is this massive national action. And I think that's what frightens me and frustrates me about the lack of action. So I think the best thing that local communities can do is lobby like hell, Okay, is actually make your politicians understand how incredibly important climate change action is and action that is fair. And I think that's my fear is that we will get to a point where all governments, even the most conservative ones, will finally go, ah, that climate change thing, Mm, Mm, yeah, yeah, seems (laughs) to be an issue, (laughs) yeah. And then the policy responses will have the most difficult impacts on the people who can least afford it. So people who are poor now, who are disabled now, who are living in rented houses, who mm. you know are already disadvantaged, will be profoundly disadvantaged yes. further. Mm. And that's what worries me mm. a great deal. And I think that's where 
communities can play a huge role in deciding what the response is going to look like. Are we going to make sure everyone has somewhere warm in the winter and cool in the summer to be, that has enough to eat, that people have somewhere to be and work to do that's, that fulfills them? Like, And if that's going to be our response as a community, then what are the policy responses that we want to advocate for in our national state? A return to the past, isn't it, of caring for your neighbour? Mm. We seem to have lost in recent years. No, I, I don't think we have lost that at all. I just, I, I really don't. And I, I push back a lot on this idea that we've suddenly become selfish because I just don't see that at all. I see communities responding to disasters with overwhelming generosity and goodwill. I mm. see people responding on Facebook to people's calls for help with overwhelming responses of, yes, of, yes. of help and support. And I, so I don't actually believe that idea that we're somehow becoming more, a more selfish people. I don't actually believe that. I think that serves people's interests to make that statement. I think it serves the market and serves people's interests around making money, but I don't actually think it's true. And I think that making policy on the assumption that people are means you get policy. But if you make policy on the assumption that people do want to help each other and people are in community with each other as an active thing rather than, oh, that that community over there, but we are in community with each other because we are human beings and we're tribal and all that stuff, then if we make policy around that, then it'll actually work for the communities. Yes, Mm. But it's not going to be the same everywhere. So what's going to work here in our community is not going to be the same as what works for you, even in Blaney, as far as, you know, (laughs) that's not very far away. Are you, are you optimistic? Oh, about, about uh, look, relentlessly optimistic, Rich. It's one of those <laughs> ridiculous things about me that I know that for all of my own challenges in terms of, so I, I have a mobility restriction and I live in a lot of pain and all of that kind of stuff. And quite often people go, how do you do it, Elle? And I'm like, oh, for God's sake. You know, I, I, I do, I am optimistic because the people that I know are bloody amazing and people mm. do really quite extraordinary things mm. without actually making too much of a fuss about it. And I think that people have the capacity to solve this and I think that if, if we recognise community strengths and communities' ability to be extremely adapt- adaptable and flexible and fair, then that's really helpful. But if we treat people in the way, say, that the federal government treats people who rely on income support. So they treat people as though they're frauds, as though that they're rorting the system, they're terrible, they're all drug addicts, all of this kind of stuff. I mean, that's an awful way to treat people and to make Mm. policy. And the policies don't work, they're expensive, and they have really outcomes. But if you treat people as you're all part of the community, we've all got a stake in making this work and making it a solution, then you can actually get out good outcomes. Yes. Not ridiculous at all, though. Endearing, I think. <laughs> um, well, look, look, I'll give you a really good example. Okay. So when I first got elected to council, I did a lot of my happy puppy enthusiasm where I bound up to an issue go, oh, look, let's sort it out, you oh. know, and then people who've been working on it 20 years would roll their eyes and please. And – one of the things that I, I really wanted to work on was the highway. So the Great Western Highway sort of cuts through the mountains and it's central to lots here. It also is really problematic. There's there's huge trucks on there and that's a real issue. And one of the things that we wanted to campaign on was to get freight on rail, which is really important for climate change because you want to get trucks off the road, you want to be using the rail system yes. far more yep. and have less investment and cost on the roads. So what we needed to do was to get – 
a kind of unified campaign around no B-doubles on the highway. And to do that, everyone said, of course, it was completely impossible. The reason it was impossible was because every little stop along the highway had its own little action group, and they all wanted different things. So the Blackheath action group wanted a different thing from the little Hartley action group that wanted a different thing from the Lithgow groups that wanted the coal trucks, that wanted a different thing from the Lawson groups, that wanted a different thing from, from the Springwood groups, right? So I got all of the groups around the table and kind of banged heads together, and we came up with the three points that every single one of us could agree on. And so, and then we ran a series of public meetings across the mountains. And we got hundreds, hundreds mm. of people at all of these meetings. And because we had a unified front and because we had been able to actually find three things that all of these groups could agree on, we could then go in uh, together as a unified group yes. and go into our decision makers in our community and say, we have all of these groups on board. It scared the crap out of the politicians. Yeah. And it was really interesting in terms of we actually got stuff done. We got changes to where the highway was going to go through and destroy Mount Vic and Blackheath. Mm. We got buy-in from the Lithgow people for what the mountains people wanted. We got, And the other way around, we got the mountains people to buy into what Lithgow and Bathurst people wanted. So, it was a really interesting exercise on sitting around tables at the Lawson Bowling Club and, and you know, trying to get people to agree, but being committed to finding a, a point of agreement. Again, okay. that thing of working in community and knowing that there is a, a place that we can find some agreement in and being committed to finding sure. that agreement. Yep. Um, and it worked. And I, and I do think about that quite often and think about some of those meetings at Lawson Bowling Club and how difficult it got, and people stormed out and yelled and screamed and, you know, did all of that stuff. But we got there in the end, mm. and we and that got huge results that changed the course of the Great Western Highway in the mountains. Congratulations to her. <laughs> so it's all about finding that agreement. Yeah, finding what is where we can be in community as a verb, as an action, you mm. know, rather than community as an abstract now, it is in community as a as a verb, as a doing. And we're all in that together, mm. climate change included. And I know that in the Blue Mountains there's the Renew Energy uh, group that have um, started up, have been been going for quite a few years. That's another example, isn't it, too, of people getting together under a common denominator, finding out what they need and bring community into it. Exactly. And that's been – that's really – that's a good – Example because it's people coming together to do something that it's difficult to do as an individual. Yes. So energy is a really good example because it's hard. I mean, I can't, you know, necessarily generate electricity by myself or make an impact in terms of the bigger grid. And so they are doing a really good stuff about community buyers of solar, you know, for example. And I know lots of communities are doing things like that. And that's a great idea because it brings back to that kind of economic fairness at the same time. Oh, there we go. Just burping up dial. <laughs> oh, tasty too, isn't it? Yeah, very tasty. Yeah, well, that's been a fantastic interview. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you very much for, t- for your time. Now, I'm going to have all the details, but the contact, people can contact you, so read your stuff in, is, in the show notes. That, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You find me on on the Twitters um, okay. at Blunt Shovels. Blunt Shovels. Yeah, it's the best, best way to find me. Um, it's where I'm there usually snarking on about something, <laughs> uh, being sarcastic and having a dig at someone. I'm also, yes, as you said, a, mash, a, a passionate footy fan, so you can listen to us on Baffled Radio, and you can find that again on the Twitters. Fantastic. All right, Elle. Thank you very much again. That's been really good. My absolute pleasure. Lovely to see you again, Rich. Nice to see you, Elle. 
All right. That was a great interview. Thank you so much, Rich. I learned a lot from that. Uh, looking back on it now, I know you recorded that a couple months ago. How did that kind of age? Are you looking forward to speaking to Elle again soon? Yeah, I'll catch up with her. I'm usually back in the mountains, which is where I used to live. My son still lives there, so I'll catch up with her and we'll share a coffee and a yarn. I'm just wondering, Mark, what did you get out of this? Well, I'm really looking forward to a second interview with her, actually. I found what she had to say really fascinating. And she, she knows the nuts and bolts of local government and what it's like to be on city council and what it actually takes to get something done. And you can tell that as soon as you actually are thinking practically about doing something, it's it's not as simple as just, here's an idea, let's do it. You've mm. got to actually think through five, six, seven different layers of flow-on effects, yeah. how to get something actually done. I like her very nuanced and practical approach to things. You know, when when you say... We need a climate change policy. Yes, we do. But yes, it does need to be linked to transport and housing. And I think I found it really interesting that that someone like me who comes in at a very kind of climate change alarmist level who says that climate change is the number one issue. It's the most pressing thing. Everything else should be secondary to it. I'm really discounting the fact that people still need to live. They still need to get to work. And for for people, those are the most important issues day to day. So they need to be treated with just as much care and consideration as as climate change does yeah and it's her method of conciliatory action as she talks about the highway that mm-hmm. runs through the blue mountains there was a lot of controversy i can recall that and the way i dealt with it was nothing short of amazing that's right her, her approach of sort of finding the the lowest common denominator find out really what is the most fundamental thing that every possible group can agree on, and then yeah. building from there. It's She's a great consensus builder. There's a lesson there for all of us, isn't there, Mark? There really is. And, yeah, she. I, I'm really happy to have her voice on the show. And as I said, I, I can't wait to have her back. And thank you for doing this interview, Rich. No problem at all. Well, that's us for this week. We will be back next week with our Waste Special. We know it's a very burning topic, and we can't wait to get it to you. So now we'll have some credits here for you. Greg Grossi, our amazing composer, thank you so much for this great new theme. Yes. Check him out at Chambers on SoundCloud. That's C-H-A-M-B-R-E-S. Caleb Fidicaro, our fantastic producer. Yes, he got a promotion. Hold your applause. (laughs) He's at Hipster Jazzbo on Twitter. Don't ask me why. Abby Hawkins, our intrepid designer. Uh, Look out for great photos soon of the Climactic logo on a t-shirt, a hoodie, and a cake. (laughs) Check out her work and hire her at abigailhawkins.com. Yes. And finally, Gretchen, our key advisor and resident goat whisperer. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, folks, and we'll see you next week for our big waste special. Thanks for listening. Thank you.